Well, this morning, uh, I get the privilege of introducing our speaker, and his name is Ernie Madden. You can come on up. I usually call him Dad. Um, call him Father Madden. Um, I do it when I'm feeling rebellious or need to confess. <laughs> so, uh, actually, just so you know, uh, he prefers to be called Ernie, not Pastor Ernie or, or Reverend Ernie. I sometimes call him those names just to bother him, but uh, there's a passage in Scripture that talks about not being called rabbi if you're the teacher, and so I think that applies to pastor as well. That So if you talk to him after, call him Ernie, but I just wanted to say that I think indirectly my dad has had a huge influence on this church because I've been a part of this since the beginning, and obviously he raised me, and any influence I've had that's a positive influence on this church has largely been a benefit of his raising me. And so uh, beyond that, uh, every Monday morning we meet as a leadership team as the church. And right after that meeting, I have lunch, I go home, and then I talk to dad on the phone for a couple hours. We talk about his church, we talk about our church. He's given advice about how we should do things here and um, has just been a huge influence on me personally and I think ultimately this church. So if you guys could just welcome uh, Reverend Father Pastor Ernie Madden. Well, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit later in the message why uh, Chris was kind of the black sheep of our family. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rebellious as he confessed a little bit. That, that's good. But uh, it's great to be with you here this morning. And uh, today we're in part three in a series called Christian. And if you were asked to give a good definition of Christian, if we gave you all a piece of paper and asked you to write out your definition, I would guess we'd have 30 or 40 different definitions. It's kind of subjective, and you'd kind of include a few different things and might disagree with some people on exactly what your definition of Christian is. But the early believers uh, didn't even call themselves Christians. Uh, in fact, it was kind of a derogatory name. It would be like today if you were called a, a redneck or a nerd, or uh, maybe if you made it more religious and you said, you're a Jesus freak or something like that. It's, it's kind of to put people down. Uh, and the early, uh, the, the early believers, they actually had a different name that they called themselves, and the word was disciple. And the scary thing about the term disciple is that it is very clearly defined. And nobody would really argue on the definition of disciple. It simply means a follower or a pupil. And so if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, then everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Because that basically means that you devote yourself to living your life the way that Jesus did and the way that Jesus taught. And that's very different from just saying that you're a Christian. I think the basic difference that I see between the two is a Christian is a believer. That's the requirement for our salvation, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to say, Lord, I'm not good enough on my own. I need a Savior. And Jesus came into this world to die for our sins. So it's all about putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But a disciple is a doer. So a Christian is a believer. But a disciple, you call yourself a follower of Christ? That means you're a doer. And that reminds me of a story of a, a famous tightrope uh, artist or walker by, by the name of Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin was especially known for walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so he walked across, and the crowd was just amazed that he was so brave to do that and everything. So he got done. 
And he said, how many of you think I can do that blindfolded? And the crowd just went nuts. They started chanting. And they started saying, we believe, we believe, we believe. And Charles Blondin put a blindfold on and did the tightrope thing over Niagara Falls. He got done with that, and he got on a loudspeaker. He says, how many of you believe that I can do that with somebody on my back? And the crowd started yelling again, we believe, we believe, we believe. And then Charles said, who wants to volunteer? <laughs> he didn't get any volunteers that day. I'm not sure, sure why, but uh, I think sometimes Christians are like that. We're saying, we believe, we believe, we believe when it comes to doing what Jesus calls us to do. Sometimes it's dead silence. And so um, they, they were all believers in that crowd, but none of them were doers. And so the same way, Christians are believers. And not all Christians are doers, but disciples are doers. They put their faith into action. And so uh, last week, I, I think you looked at the passage where, where Jesus said, the people will know you are the disciples if you love one another. Because that is the trait of all disciples. All disciples should have that trait, that we love one another. And it kind of reminds me of my favorite verse in all of Scripture. It's from Galatians 5, verse 6. And it simply says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so what that's saying, you look at the context of that, it's saying the only thing that really matters is your faith in Jesus Christ. That you're not putting your faith in your own works and your own goodness. You admit that you're a sinner, and so you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you express that faith through the love that you have for God and for other people. And so, so the Christian, they've got the first part down. I'm a believer. I have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but the disciple puts their faith into action. And so they, so they show love to people, and they show their love to God. They express that faith through love. So basically, we could say that a disciple is a Christian, but not all Christians are really disciples. And here's one of the problems with that. Most believers expect a lot less from themselves than non-believers expect from us. And so Christians keep on saying to themselves or maybe even to others, they say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And others keep on saying, you don't follow Jesus, you don't act like Jesus, you don't act like Jesus, you're not like him, but you're saying that you're a Christian, and that's confusing to people. So last week, I think you were looking at how Jesus followers should treat one another. But this week, we're going to look at how Jesus followers should treat those who don't want to be his followers. And to begin, I want to go back to something that Jesus uh, said right before he left this earth in Matthew 28. And some of the most famous words are recorded from, from Jesus and, and what he said to his disciples just before he left this earth. It's called the Great Commission is what a lot of people call that today. It's Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. And it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, since I have that authority, listen to me. This is what you are called to do as believers. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. And there's our word. And isn't it interesting that Jesus never said, go and make Christians. He didn't say, go and make believers. But he said, go and make followers of me. 
And so if, if you just made believers and they didn't change their lifestyles, that wouldn't really lead too many other people. But if you go and make disciples and you do all what Jesus says right here, oh, what a difference it'll make in this world because he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey, to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he assures them, he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And when Jesus left the earth, his followers began doing that. And you can see by the results, they began to start up churches which developed more and more and more followers of Jesus Christ. And it kept growing and growing and growing at an incredible pace. And everything went great for about 300 years or so. And amazingly, Rome, Rome of all places, you might know them for, for killing Christians, uh, for killing the Apostle Paul, for one, and, and, and you know, many, many Christians that they would kill, they'd burn them at the stake. It was just a terrible place to live. But 300 years later, and I think because of the way Christians lived and because of the way they modeled what Jesus said, amazingly, Rome a place that had previously been very anti-Christian, had actually become a place where Christianity became the official religion. And then things went bad. Because now, now the church had the power. And here's the problem. Anytime the church leverages anything but love, Anytime the church leverages anything but love. Let me say that one more time. Anytime the church leverages anything but love, it always goes backward. It never goes forward. And once the church got the power, they decided they were not going to leverage love anymore. And so after the church got control, the Great Commission began to sound something like this. It was something like this. Therefore, go and impose my teaching and impose my worldview on all people, threatening them with judgment if they don't obey everything I have commanded you. And that's the message of a group that has the power. And that's the message of a group that's in control, but it's not the message of Jesus, and it's not the message of the New Testament. The message of Jesus is to love people to Christ, not to force or control them. And the Apostle Paul was an awesome example of this. He wanted to go to people who didn't believe, and he wanted to go to people who just didn't want anything to do with following God. And he didn't win them over with power or control. Here's what the Apostle Paul did, 1 Corinthians 9. It says, even though I am a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people. Now, that's not something we usually brag about, to be a slave of all people, but that's what Paul said. I'm a free man, and I have no master, but I become a slave to all people. In other words, he says, I don't power up, and I don't become judgmental. I don't get all high and mighty. I make myself a slave 
to everyone. And why does he do that? He says, to bring many to Christ. Or the New International Version puts it, to win as many as possible. That's his motto. So why do I serve the Jews? Paul would say, to win as many as possible. Why do I serve the Gentiles? To win as many as possible. Hey, Paul, what are you trying to do over there? I'm trying to win as many as possible. And why are you trying to do that, Paul? Because Jesus said, go into the world and help people to become his followers. And Paul would say, I've learned that the best way to do that is to win them. Now, let me ask you a question, and I don't want you to answer this, this out loud, but have you ever won a contract, or have you ever won someone's business? Or, or maybe a better question is, have you ever won someone's heart? And if you did, how did you do that? Well, I'm pretty sure I know how. If you have won somebody's business, you made it so that they wanted to use your product or your service more than your competitors. And you convince them that your product or your service is a better deal than anyone else's. And how did you win her heart? And how did you win his heart? I know how you did it. You made you the most attractive choice. And you made them want you more than anybody else. Because you don't win people by imposing yourself on others. It never works that way. You don't win people over by imposing your will. And so Paul says, I'll do whatever it takes to win people over. I'll do whatever it takes to convince people that this is a better product, to convince them that this is a better way to go. This is the way you want to live your life. Because more than anything else, Paul would say, I want to draw them to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, for the first 300 years of the church, that, that was the basic approach that Christians had. But then, just somewhere along the way, they decided, we're not going to leverage love anymore. We're going to leverage our power. Because now we're in a position of power. This is what our, our country worships. We're, nationally, we are our Christian nation. Uh, and so, so we're going to leverage our authority. We're going to leverage our influence. And so we're going to go from winning to threatening. And we're going to go from God is love to God will get you. God will get you. You better watch out. You better be careful. It's a different message. And whenever Christians leverage anything but love, we just go backwards every single time. And so today I want to go to a passage where Paul actually teaches that principle. And I think today's lesson is uh, very important because in our culture today, most Christians seem to have gotten it wrong. And because we've gotten it wrong, we've set our, ourselves uh, unnecessarily at odds with our culture. Because we think we have great news for people, right? We want to share the love of Jesus with others. And, and we think God loves people, and we want people to know that. But the problem is that our approach is sometimes terrible. And I don't know how it got so confused, but, but we're going to uh, take a look today at the approach that the Apostle Paul gives us. And it's much more effective to winning people. 
to Jesus Christ. And we're going to take a, a look at a book called 1 Corinthians, uh, which is a letter that Paul wrote to a, a church in Corinth. And uh, in the city of Corinth, it's kind of like Las Vegas would be today. It was basically sin city. And I don't know, they might have had an expression that said, uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, it's very much like that. And there are a lot of pagans in that city that, that were very far away from God. And so Paul writes a letter to the followers of Christ there to encourage them. It's a tough environment for someone trying to follow Christ. And he helps them out by telling them how to live in a world that is full of sin everywhere you go. And he says, here's how to follow Jesus in that kind of culture. And he starts out by addressing something that's going on inside the church. And it's something that's, that's even making people outside of the church say, ooh, that's bad. That's terrible. And now there, there was a disciple's kind of moral standards, and then there was pagan morality. And those two were entirely different standards. And Paul says, what's going on is so bad, and it's got to do with sexual immorality. And it's so bad that the pagans are even saying, ah, oh, that's gross. That's awful. And, and so now you want to know what it is, right? You, you want to know what's the gossip? What was going on there, Paul? And, and, and here it is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. And they would tolerate just about anything. Even the pagans wouldn't tolerate this. And here it is. He says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. So this is not his mother, or it probably would have said that, but he, uh, this is his stepmother that he's sleeping with. And, and it's, um, it, it's not a one-time thing. And everybody appears to, to know about it. It's no big secret. And so he says, and you are proud and I think some churches are like that today. They're proud of the kind of sin that they just welcome and accept. And, you know, I think we, we should welcome people, and, and it doesn't matter what their sin is, we want to love them. But we don't just say, yeah, that's okay, that's okay to keep sinning and sinning. In fact, I would hope your policy at your church would be the same as mine. It's like, everybody's welcome. Come as you are. No perfect people allowed. But we hope you don't stay that way. We want us to change, be convicted by God's word. We want that to change your, your lives. And so in verse 2, he says, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? And that might sound a little bit harsh and judgmental to some of you. And it, 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 you might be saying, well, well Paul, you know, this, this is outrageous. This is terrible. Paul's, Paul's saying this is outrageous. It's terrible. Uh, you got a major problem on your hands. Somebody is sinning in a way that is so bad that even the pagans think this is horrible. So check this out. He says, for my part, even though I'm not physically present with you, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord, Jesus, on the one who has been doing this. So Paul says, I have already passed judgment on him, to which I think we want to say, well, time out, Paul. Don't you know the Bible says you're not supposed to judge? And I think Paul would just say, um, hold on here a second. Um, I'm writing the Bible here, so listen to what I have to say. 
The Bible doesn't say not to judge ever. There are some verses that, that say that, but they're in context. It tells us uh, specifically who and when to judge and when not to judge. And in this passage, Paul is telling the Corinthians to judge the man who has signed on to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if you were on a sports team, and the, the rule on the sports team is if you get caught for drinking or drugs, you're going to get kicked off the team, because you're hurting the team if you do that sort of thing. And Paul says, you're hurting the name of Jesus Christ when you sin like this. So here's what he says to do. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And it's like this guy is, is playing for a different team. So it's saying, kick him off the Jesus team, let him go ahead and join the Satan team, and let him deal with reality. Don't let him keep on going and saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Don't let him be one of those people that says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And then everybody around him looks at him and says, you don't follow Jesus, you don't follow Jesus, you don't follow Jesus. And tell this guy, if you want to live like that, fine. Just don't call yourself one of us. Because this is not how followers of Jesus Christ act. And the purpose is not at all to, to send this person to hell. The, the goal is that the, the discipline will cause him to straighten out and come back to the church and to come back to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. You do this out of love. And in fact, when you look at 2 Corinthians, it appears that Paul's talking about the same person. He says, hey, this guy has repented. He's turned things around. Stop being so hard on him now. Let him back into the church. It's just what we wanted to happen. He repented. That's the goal. And then Paul gives a little analogy of why it's important to, di to discipline this guy. He says, uh, verse, verse uh, 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Have you ever used too much yeast with dough? I did that one time. Uh, I was a youth pastor at Columbia Street Baptist Church back in the, the 90s. And uh, we had suppers every Wednesday night. And so uh, one time I volunteered for the, the cook. I said, uh, I, I've got a recipe that you can use for, uh, uh, for, for pizza. I said, I'll, I'll mix it all up and I'll get it all ready for you. And so uh, I mixed it all up real nice. It looked great. It was nice, a big bowl and everything. And, and she comes down about three hours later and it was just a mess. I put a little too much yeast in the dough. And it's like all over the counter, all over the floor. And she never asked me to help with the suppers anymore. I don't know why that was. But uh, uh, and it, you know, so there's a little more dough than uh, she was expecting. And most of it, you know, not in the bowl, just all over the floor and everything. And, and uh, Paul is saying that yeast can make the dough spread all over the place. Paul was right. He knew what he was talking about. You should listen to Paul. And so likewise, if you let sin go, um, go on among the disciples in the church, then you're going to find out that it gets very contagious, and it spreads. And others will be copying the same behaviors. And outsiders will be appalled with what the disciples in your church are doing. But Paul gives a clarification on who we need to judge and who we need to discipline. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. And so Paul apparently wrote a previous letter to the Corinthian church that we don't, don't have access to. But in that letter, he told them not to associate 
with sexually immoral people. But then he clarifies here what he meant by that. He said, not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral. And then he adds a list of other sins that can be extremely harmful to the body of Christ. He says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. And I think that verse there is very, very helpful because you've probably felt like you're surrounded by some pretty sinful people. Uh, maybe it's at a family reunion. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at school. But there's probably some settings where you're thinking, oh, I really shouldn't be here with these people. These are not very godly people. And I think there, there are some Christians who are, are like that, who decide they should never hang around with such sinful people. And they avoid those kind of people like the plague. And they have no positive influence on their lives whatsoever because of that. And it's because they disengage with those who misbehave. And they judge them. And they have nothing to do with them, except maybe they'll talk about them behind their back. But Paul says, don't do that. You don't need to leave the world around you just because you're surrounded by godless people. And you don't need to judge those people. But listen carefully to what he says instead. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Just don't have any association with them. So he's talking about someone who's on the inside, someone who's part of the family of God, but is living like someone on the outside. He's talking about someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, who's living a lifestyle that's totally contrary to what they've been taught. And then he asks a very important question. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And that's a great question. Great question for each one of us to ask ourselves. And what's the answer to that question? You, you tell me. I'll ask it again. Your, your answer's going to... I'm going to give you the answer. It's an open answer test here. It, it's, um, you know, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You can just tell me. It's none of your business, okay? Let's say that together. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? What is it again? A little louder? It's none of my business. And it's none of your business either. And we tend to make it our business. We think we've got to fix all the world's problems, but that's not what we're called to do. Now, Paul is, is talking about civil or federal laws here. And he's talking about our, our he's not talking about our civil or federal love, uh, law here. He's, he's talking about personal judgments and the overall judgment of the church. And if someone is, is not claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we need to keep in mind that that person never signed up to our standards. And so we should not expect non-Jesus followers to act like Jesus followers. But everyone should expect that Jesus followers would act like Jesus. And ironically, and unfortunately, the church is, is, uh, is great at policing the behaviors of outsiders and not judging the insiders. And we're usually pretty comfortable criticizing the behaviors of non-believers. 
But since we're friends with most of the church people, we don't like the word judge. Uh, but think about this. If you're a parent or, or if you've ever been a kid in your house, you had rules, right? You had rules, whether you're a kid or a parent or whatever. In fact, it's not really a good home if there's no judgment. If your kid swears or steals or hits somebody, they're probably going to get punished, right? Because you don't want to see that behavior continue. I can remember when I was growing up in high school, my parents were real sticklers to, to you know, the rules that they had. And one in particular is they, they wanted us home by 10 o'clock. And part of it was, you know, my father had to get up early, and, and, um, you know, and he and my mom just, just wanted to be in bed and know all the kids were home by 10 o'clock. And so we'd get, we'd get home at 10 past 10. Sometimes we'd even be coming back from youth group. We'd go out to eat after, and our ride wouldn't get us there until 10 past 10, and we'd get in big trouble. And I remember, you know, telling my dad, I said, Dad, all my friends can stay out till 11 or 12. And I said, you know, my best friend's name was Jeff. He said, he can stay out till like 12 o'clock and he doesn't get in trouble. And you know, Jeff's parents, you're good friends with his parents. How come Jeff gets to stay out till 12 and I got to be in by 10? And he sat me down. He said, you know, Ernie, that's really simple. The reason why Jeff can stay out till 12 is because I'm not Jeff's dad. <laughs> I tried to argue with him, but that was... That's the way it was. That was not, you know, uh, Jeff's problem. It wasn't my father's problem. But you know what? My dad never once corrected my friend Jeff's behavior. And he never punished my friend Jeff for coming home late. And he never scolded any of my friends. And a lot of them, they'd get drunk on Friday nights after the basketball games. They'd all go out partying. They'd get drunk. And my father never said anything to them about getting drunk. He didn't tell them they shouldn't do that. He didn't scold them or get them in trouble. But I'd get home 10 past 10, and I'd get in big trouble. And my parents would tell me, you know, life's not always fair. And that's just, just the way it was for me. So guess what I did when I was a parent? Chris can tell you. Now it's time to tell you a little bit about Chris. Okay, so, so Chris, uh, we, we, um, uh, we were living in uh, Hamden. We moved to, to Milo, and he starts getting into high school. He thinks he's a big boy now and everything. I, I had two rules. You know, one is you be in by 10 o'clock, uh, and, and partly because I know kids get in a lot more trouble at 10 o'clock. It was a good rule my parents said, and we didn't get in too much trouble. And the other rule, you know, I used to be a youth pastor, and so uh, the other rule that I had, I'd, I'd read a book that said, you know, kids are, are much more likely to not remain sexually pure if they start dating before age 16. And so Chris, I want to start dating when he's 15. And Chris's best friend happened to be named Jeff. And so Chris says, you know, Jeff gets to stay out 12, and he's 15, and he's already dating. How come I can't stay out till 12? How come I can't stay? How come I can't date? How come Jeff gets to do that? And I said, well, Chris, sit down. Let me tell you. <clears throat> the reason Jeff gets to stay out late and the reason Jeff gets to date when he's 15 years old is because I am not Jeff's dad. And he didn't have a very good argument against that. He was just stuck with it. And I said, and Chris, life's not always fair, so deal with it. You know? And, and uh, so Chris was the oldest of my kids. And um, you know, I know you might find this it's hard to believe because he's, he's kind of a leader here in this church and everything, but, but sometimes Chris had to be judged and Chris had to be disciplined for breaking the rules. And you know what? He got in a whole lot more trouble than the rest of my kids. 
Uh, he got a lot more spankings when he was younger, and then when he got older, uh, he, he was the one that just broke the rules sometimes and stayed out too late and was doing stuff he wasn't doing. In fact, he was in like junior high, and he never got to go out on a date, but he had a girlfriend in junior high. And, uh, yeah, that wasn't really allowed, but he just kind of did that behind his parents' back. They didn't get to go anywhere or anything, didn't get to do anything, but he was just a rebellious kid, troublemaker. My other three kids, they saw how much trouble he got, and they, they just never even asked these questions, and they just were, were great kids. So Chris was kind of the black sheep of the, the family. <laughs> so I was pretty strict with my kids, but you know what? I never punished or even scolded Chris's friend, Jeff, for breaking my family rules. Because Jeff's family didn't have the same family rules that I had. And what Jeff's parents did with their kids was none of my business. He was part of a different family. But sometimes my kids felt judged when they broke one of my rules. And you know what? They were judged because they're my kids. And I love my kids. So I had to make judgments on their behavior. And I had to confront them when they did wrong. And I had to discipline them. And that's what happens when you're part of a family. You have rules, and those rules have to be followed. And it's the same way in God's family. God has rules that need to be followed. And when the rules are not followed, God's word says that it is the church's responsibility to discipline people. And so Paul says, are you not to judge those inside? And the obvious answer is yes. And I wouldn't want you to get carried away with this. This doesn't mean we go around judging every little move that everyone in the church makes. We don't have to police people all the time. But when it's outrageous, like this example, there is a time for discipline. There is a time for confrontation. So don't forget our main goal is to love one another. That's why we discipline our kids. That's why we would discipline someone in the church. But when the behavior is so bad that even the pagans recognize that it's wrong, then we better take care of the problem, <clears throat> even if it means to go to the extent of expelling an immoral believer. But, but for those outside of the church, Paul says, God will judge those outside. That's not our job. That's not our responsibility and that is not our business. And you might make non-believers feel guilty because of your good behavior. They might compare themselves to you, and just being around you might make them feel guilty. But you sure don't want that to happen because you're condemning other people. And they are not part of your family of God if they're not believers. What they do is none of your business as far as their sinful behavior. And here's the bottom line. Your job is to love your sisters and your brothers and to stop judging all the others. I worked real hard on that little poem, so write that down. It rhymes, okay? Your job is to love your sisters and your brothers and to stop judging all the others. And when you love your sisters and your brothers, sometimes the most loving thing in the world for them could be for the church to discipline them. Partly for the individual's sake, and partly for the church body's sake. 
And I focus quite a bit today on, on why we sometimes need to judge or discipline people inside the church. I haven't heard of any church discipline problems you need to take care of. That's not uh, what this is about. This is kind of part of the series about what a Christian is, okay? But let me close by emphasizing the importance of not judging people outside of the church. And I want you to just think a little bit. And can you imagine what a difference it could make if, if non-believers could just be assured when they walk into your church that they will not be judged by anyone in the church family? And I know you strive to, to do that as a church, but could you just imagine, if you just had that reputation, no one's going to judge you when you walk into this place. And can you imagine how many more people you would see if, pe if people knew that no one was going to judge them for their clothes or their tattoos or their rings, and that no one was going to judge their sexual morals or their drinking habits or political persuasion. And that's, that's one that just really bothers me, is political persuasion. And it's just watching Christians uh, in my own church and people around the country just posting all this political stuff. And I don't even mind so much you post your political opinion, I'm a Republican for this reason or Democrat or whatever, but it's when we ridicule the other side. And don't you realize you've got hundreds of people that are reading that, many of them non-believers, and they're just turned off by Christianity. And you're just trying to win people over to your political side. You're fighting the wrong battle. You want people to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Uh, or maybe it's their views on abortion or homosexuality, whatever it is that, that divides people. Why do we stress that so much? Everybody needs a Savior no matter what their sin problem is. And I think the mistake that Christians often make is that they focus on a particular sin that they want a non-believer to change. But when we see non-believers, our concern should not be to fix their sinful lifestyle. Our concern, no matter what their lifestyle, should be their need to see the Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Savior loved sinners. And he spent time with them. And he didn't judge them. And when they accepted his gift of salvation and they signed on to become a disciple and to be part of his family, then and only then, Jesus raised the bar. Not until then. You know, when a person says, yeah, I want to be a follower of Christ, then the bar raises substantially. And when we take that approach, we will be much more, more likely to win people over to Jesus Christ. Because when, G when people see the combination of disciples loving each other and not judging outsiders in any way, but welcoming them and loving them, regardless of their sins, that's when you'll see a, a growing church that many unchurched people will love to attend because it will be contagious. And that is when, when people will be won over to the Lord Jesus Christ and it will cause them to want to become new disciples. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just pray that your spirit would uh, convict our hearts and um, help us to, uh, to put these words into practice. Help us, Lord, to forgive us, Lord, when we have uh, been, been negligent of, of your word, and sometimes we have uh, judged non-believers and their sinful behaviors, and we start making that our business when it's really not our business. 
And forgive us, Lord, when sometimes it's just really necessary to confront another believer who's just kind of heading in the, the wrong direction, someone that we know and love and care about. Help us to be wise uh, when we, we need to do that. Uh, but help us not to have judgmental hearts, but just to help us to have the love that, that your son displayed for us here on this earth. And Father, we, we want to pray for um, Pastor Jim while he's away. We pray that your spirit would uh, work in his heart and that um, you would uh, just make this a very refreshing time for, for he and Tanya and, and their family. And bless them, Lord. Bless this church. We pray this in Jesus' name.